Welcome to the Aquas Podcast. Conversations about regs, funds, and governance with your host, Daniel Lawler. Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome to this crypto and Bitcoin edition of the Aquas Podcast. Let me give you a little backstory before I tell you about our guest. So when I'm teaching about short selling and the use of derivatives by funds and what have you, I often use the rise of Bitcoin in 2017 as a very good example. So it started 2017 at about $1,000 per Bitcoin and finished just shy of $20,000. So it's a really interesting study in how an asset class can rise very rapidly over a short period of time. And if you've gone short on that asset class, expecting it to fall, you're likely to lose your shirt. So that was back in 2017. And since then, uh, obviously, Bitcoin has continued, but the price has fallen away somewhat. And the talk and the buzz around crypto assets and the technology behind them, blockchain as well. Uh, whilst there was a lot of talk about them at that time around 2017, they do seem, to my mind, to have faded away a little bit. So I was really interested to know how Bitcoin has performed in these uh, uncertain times with so much market volatility. And I was interested to know whether the zeal and the belief that uh, followers of blockchain and the DLT, the distributed ledger technology, had that I experienced whenever I happened upon them, whether there's much to it or whether this is another fad that will just fade away. So for this episode, really delighted to have a great guy, Andrew Tijali, as our guest. Andrew is a lawyer, but don't hold that against him. He also has been somebody who's been working with firms involved in this area, all to do with crypto and DLT, since this got off the ground. He's worked with firms who have done things like ICOs, initial coin offerings, and he's worked with uh, crypto exchanges. So he's very familiar with all of the jargon, all of the terminology, but he also is familiar with the history of how these uh, uh, products and financial services lines have developed from inception through to today, and some very interesting views on where this might go into the future. So sit back, relax, listen while myself and Shannon have a really interesting conversation with Andrew about all things crypto. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to this episode of the Equest podcast. We're delighted to be joined by Andrew Tijali, who is a partner in Philip Lee Solicitors, who's going to talk to us all about crypto, blockchain, distributed ledger technology, and all those buzzwords that we've heard so much about over the last couple of years. Hi, Andrew, how are you doing? Hello, Danny. Very well, thank you. And you? Well, I'm not too bad, but I'm quite pleased with myself. I think one of my great achievements over the last a uh, couple of years is to be able to pronounce your surname correctly. <laughs> I think I nailed it. Are you going to set Very me straight? Good. That's absolutely perfect. Actually, you, you would perhaps even rival my wife, Danny, for how well you said that there. I think after after 10 years, uh, uh, she's she's just about getting it. So yeah, you, Say it you, again, Danny. Tijali. Perfect. Uh, I'm not going to try. I'm not going to try. It could be the comedy moment of the episode, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> Why? No, no. <laughs> so, Andrew, how is uh, lockdown life going for the solicitor? Uh, it's going. It's going okay. I guess it had its it had its challenges initially, like everyone else ha- uh, has probably faced. And we've got a a very energetic two year old and four year old. Um, my wife and I both trying to work um, as best we can. Netflix and Amazon Prime are helping us as, as surrogate parents at times during the day. But um, the remote working has actually worked very well, uh, actually. We, 
we moved to a cloud-based system at the start of the year. So we were almost set up for this um, very nice. That was good timing. It was very good timing. It would have been a very different challenge if we hadn't. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's working well. And I think, you know, we're having our catch up calls and remote partners meetings and all the kind of exciting things needed to run a law firm. Um, but yeah, so far so good. Good. I, I saw a survey this week that said 84% of people who were now working from home uh, would like to see that continue in some form post the end of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, I, I think that probably applies to us as well. You know, we were... Uh, we weren't a million miles away from moving to or looking at securing something regarding new premises. Uh, we were growing at a pretty phenomenal rate. Um, uh, we just merged with a with another uh, small practice in Dublin, uh, McAvoy Corporate as well. But now the talk is all about, well, do we really need bigger premises? How many people really are going to be back in the office um, you know, full time? And, and, and I think once the once the schools and the creches are, are open in September onwards, I think I think it becomes very manageable. Actually, I'm I'm amazed how manageable uh, it will it will perhaps be uh, working from home full time. And, and I think um, does manageable mean enjoyable? Um, yeah, I th- look. It, the, the reality is, it was extremely difficult just getting into the swing of things, mainly because of you know trying to be a parent to to two young kids. I think. Obviously, everyone thinks the cross they're carrying on their shoulders is the heaviest. I know lots of people who are trying to homeschool their kids whilst working full-time, and that's just as challenging. But um, it, it creates a little bit of flexibility. We're spending much more time as a family. Um, yes, we're working longer hours. I think I'm actually working longer hours than I did before, um, as are lots of my colleagues. Um, but... Uh, you know, we're having a nice long lunch as a family whenever we can. We'll stop for dinner, and then the kids will go to bed, and then we log back on again and carry on. So, um, no, it's 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 both tolerable and manageable, Shannon. I would say. Um, Are you going to be in the camp of wanting to stay working from home in September? Well, actually, word on the street is January for a lot of the tech industry here in Dublin. But are yeah, you well, to stay working from home. I, th- I think we pro- I think we probably will. I think there's it's important to try and have some cohesion uh, and and team spirit wherever we can. And I think there'll be certain times where we're going to try and rotate being in the office. This is probably going in later in the year, September, October onwards, I suspect. Um, but still, it'll, I, I don't see a time in the distant uh, in the in the short term that I'll be in regularly, to be honest. And I think. Seeing lots of the tech companies saying, you know, as people I know at Facebook were told, unlikely to be in until June next year. Um, my wife's at Twitter. Um, they've just said uh, permanent full-time working from home policy for life for anyone that wants wow. it. Um, so, um, yeah, it's worked that well for them that their, their founder uh, announced that yesterday, the day before yesterday. So um, the, the world as we know it, I think from the, certainly from a, Remote working perspective, I think, will will change uh, for the foreseeable future, in my opinion. And have you uh, learned a new skill or developed something or made the most of your your new time, you found time that you're not uh, commuting? Um, I, I don't necessarily know if I have learned a new skill as such. I, I, uh, I, I've used the... 
the, the gaps in the schedule to attack the garden. Uh, I think what, what started three weeks ago as pulling out a few weeds ended up with cutting down half a dozen trees, a few shrubs, um, and we, we had probably equivalent of, it would have been about 20 carloads um, of, of green waste to go to the tip. Uh, we ended up just getting a skip and filling that up. Uh, so back, back, back at the green fingers side of things, which I quite enjoy, and when the sun is shining, um, it's an activity. I think that's what people have lacked, just having something to do that is not walking around your estate. Um, I think is important just just for your mental health um, and, and you know, physical well being. Um, but but I I I mean I don't think I've had time to to really learn a new skill. We've been so busy. Uh, how about you, Danny? Have have you mastered a new instrument yet or a new <laughs> language? Well, I started running again. Uh, I okay. used to run quite a lot. Uh, as a means of transport when I when I worked in my uh, previous job and I kind of fell away from it when I left because I didn't uh, I had to get motivated to go to run but uh, so I got back into it but now of course being older <laughs> I picked up an injury yeah. nearly straight away so I got to try and get over that before I can kind of ease back into it but it's it been nice yeah short lived short lived very short lived of your, your running motivation. yes well I yeah. really wanted to come on to the podcast and you know say oh yeah well I'm back running so you know I'm up in the moral yeah. high ground I'm only doing it just so I can tell everyone <laughs> you still get the brownie points what about you Shannon well I thoroughly enjoyed lockdown uh, it's been a lot of creative space to create in. So I've picked up quite a few new things, actually. Um, a new project, a new, well, I don't want to use your platform to announce it, but I've got a podcast coming out in June. Um, just using my time as productively and creatively as possible. I don't have an estate, but now I've decided that Bushy Park I'm just going to call that my estate. So I would be in Bushy Park now a good hour, two hours every day, thoroughly enjoying it. Excellent. Very good. Well, I do know something that I did learn. Uh, there's a category of film on Netflix called Mature. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you know what the Mature category might be, Shannon? Where's this going? Um, Remember, this is a family show. I'm going to go with documentaries. <laughs> I'll tell you what it is, right? I watched a, a Van Gogh film and I think it's the pace of the movies are so slow that you can nod off and wake up again and you won't have lost. Come on, life. that's in the mature category. Yeah. When you're old like me, Shannon, you nod off a little bit during movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, moving on to something more productive. Uh, cryptocurrencies, distributed ledger technology, blockchain, all buzzwords we've heard about for the last while. Uh, Andrew, tell us a little bit about your involvement in this world. And your background as well, please. Your background in blockchain and crypto. Sure. So um, in terms of my journey in that space, um, so before I joined Philip Lee in Dublin, uh, I was uh, a lawyer at a firm in London uh, called Sheridan's. Uh, they would be one of the leading firms in the UK in media, tech, um, film, TV, music, anything on the kind of legal side of things that's actually quite new and interesting and a bit funky, there was legal specialists in that sector there. Uh, and I, I'm a venture capital and uh, corporate transactions lawyer, um, but 
in 2013, a colleague of mine at the time at Sheridan's did a presentation to us about Bitcoin. Um, I thought it was ridiculous. Uh, this, this, how, why would anyone buy this? It does not make any sense to me at the time. Um, what year and, was that? Yeah, yeah, there's probably a lot of people that still think that now. Um, and the, uh, we started then seeing more activity in the sector, active clients in the space, exchanges, people using, uh, launching their own cryptocurrency, doing initial coin offerings, and started doing a lot more then. Um, we were one of the first law firms in Europe to accept payment of fees to Bitcoin. I think that was as early as 2014. Um, and it was then we were involved in the ICO boom um, in London. And then I saw kind of the end of it in Dublin when I came over here in March 2018. Uh, the initial coin offering boom and the kind of crypto boom. Um, so yeah, it was it was a uh, interesting and exciting and fast paced, um, but often frightening area to be in. By frightening, I mean you're you're, you're learning a lot as you go along. You know, you're, you're looking at uh, a new instrument and saying, you know, this this looks like this company's issuing shares. Um, but it's a digital representation of a share or a token. You know, this is going back four or five years. Um, there's nothing in legislation that we can find blocks it. We've written to the Financial Conduct Authority, they don't want to know. We've written to HMRC, they don't want to know. Because at the time, you know, the regulators just didn't want to make a call on it. Um, and it was so new. Um, so it was, a, it was a good space to be in. Um, and we're still, still seeing a lot of it. Now it's certainly calmed down a little bit. It's moved more away from pure cryptocurrency to, to more wider use of blockchain. I think now people are, well, people still talk about Bitcoin uh, a lot, um, particularly at the moment. Um, I think it's the other uses of the technology that we're hearing touted as perhaps being a bit more revolutionary going forward. And there, when it comes to, well, let's start with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies generally. Mm. Um, and you mentioned, you know, when you first heard about it, you thought would possibly invest in something like this. Um, mm. Not not backed by a central bank or, you know, backed to me, it seems by the fact that it's kind of hard to mine one out and there's mm. a limited amount of them. Um, mm. And we saw that tremendous rise in 2017 where it started at about $1,000, Bitcoin went up to nearly 20,000 uh, yeah. and then fell away. So there was a great buzz around it as a, as a valid asset class then. Um, I said it, it dipped after the end of 2017, it's back up now around uh, $9.5 as we speak today. Mm. What's your perception of how Bitcoin has matured and other crypto cryptocurrencies during the time? Have they kind of proven themselves as something that's going to be here, we're going to be talking about this in 10, 20 years' time? Or is it kind of a fad that we will see in history books and that'll be the end of it? Well, the, that, that is the, the, uh, the $100 billion question, I think, Danny. And for as many arguments as you can find to say it will be worth, Bitcoin will be worth $100,000 a coin in five years, you can find just as many very valid arguments to say it will be worth zero in five years' time. And therein lies uh, the, the volatility and... Um, the the ever complex nature of it but in terms of how how it's matured i think being involved as a lawyer 
in advising companies during the boom phase was insane. The, the valuations that people were getting doing initial coin offerings, which was one of the main things that drove the, the rise, uh, was crazy. You know, companies saying they were going to raise two or three million issuing a digital new digital cryptocurrency and they were going to try and do it in three months and then ended up raising 10 in six weeks uh, off the back of a spurious, you know, I don't, I think it's, you, you can't even really call it a prospectus that they were preparing substantially less than that. Um, then you also had a massive drive of FOMO fear of missing out. Uh, people were looking at the price of it. Bitcoin was becoming front page news. Um, and people were saying, God, all I have to do is, you know, I can log on to Coinbase. That's the, the, the most touted way and just buy this very, very quickly. So the two of those things drove up the market and, and blockchain startups uh, during 2017 were much more likely to do an initial coin offering than have venture capital um, money to raise finance. But then the, the downside of the sector, because at the time anyway, there's a little bit more now, but still not quite there, because market manipulation and, and kind of pump and dump and insider trading was um, not that great on the regulatory side of things for the sector, it meant that people could just dump assets, you know, founders of businesses could, that have just done ICOs could just sell them off, and, and that had a huge impact on the market, so it fell off a cliff basically. Um, massive drop. Um, I, I think it went up um, hundreds of percent during uh, 2017. Uh, it, it, it went from $20,000 to $3,500 a coin during 2018. Uh, but then you look to the more mature side of the market. So a lot of the, the craziness around it died down and the institutional money started coming in. And during... 2019, uh, Bitcoin was 92% up um, for the year. When you compare it against every major indice in the world, uh, it outperformed every single one of them. Then this year, it's 39% up. Again, compare that against every major uh, indice in the world. Look at it against NASDAQ or FTSE or Nikkei or, or, uh, or the DAX. And it's outperforming all of them. And that's 39% after the drop that it suffered um, because of the, the, the crash that every other economy around the world has, uh, and sector has experienced. So I think when, when you're getting issues and concerns about deflation and you are getting noises about mass quantitative easing projects from, from uh, governments and state banks, the Bitcoin is starting to be seen as, as a hedge against the risks that come from that. And I think we saw earlier in the week a couple of big names in the hedge fund world talking about how they're going to put a little bit of their portfolios into Bitcoin um, because it's seen as a slightly more secure. Now, the, if, you were, if, if you were a betting man, I would probably still... Uh, proceed with caution against its rise. We've seen it before, and it has a tendency to then just drop off a cliff. Still, you know, it can—it's not unheard of for the space of a month for it to lose thirty percent of value. Um, so, it, whilst it has matured and 
interest in it has matured and institutional interest has, has matured, I still think there is an underlying volatility that until you get rid of or you entirely eradicate market manipulation in the sector and, and insider trading, um, I, I think there'll always be an element of it there. Um, and, sorry, go ahead, Danny. So I was going to say, Andrew, how has the infrastructure around um, cryptocurrencies developed then? Because he said, you know, it's one thing to take the risk of market movements, but then it's, it's, it's not just that, though. It's the risk of fraud and dumping yeah. and insider trading and, and yeah. what have you. So um, I know, you know, we saw the European Commission issued a consultation paper about crypto uh, assets at the end of last year um, and different proposals in there about how they might tackle it and whether they would develop a specific regime for crypto assets to bring in um, you know, bring in this kind of regulatory scrutiny over it so that investors can have that bit of confidence in it. It's, it's now part of the AML regime, so, so that's yeah. another piece of, uh, of confidence that, uh, that, that users and investors in Bitcoin can have. So I guess it's pointing towards it being an accepted asset class with the kind of protections that you would see in other asset classes and other parts of the services industry. Yeah, I, th- I think we're we're getting there. I think, in, in fairness, you know, people would would often say to to regulators, "Come on, you know, step up. We need to have some regulation in place." But if you t- if those regulators then turned it back around and said, "So how do we do that in practice?" You have an exchange based in Estonia, with buyers based in Japan, um, with uh, servers based in um, Ireland, uh, selling to, uh, you know, even broader than just Japan, you know, globally, anyone. Where does the regulation fall? Do you regulate the the exchange? Do you regulate? uh, And all the while, it's totally distributed. So everyone processing transactions on a blockchain, if it is a truly decentralized blockchain, it's it's all over the world. So it's a very difficult thing to do, in fairness to the regulators. But we are seeing seeing an appreciation that it needs to be recognized more as in the same way as traditional assets and, and securities are. You, you are seeing all the big exchanges following the AML rules and you know you have to upload ID, uh, photo, driving license and passports and confirmation of addresses. There's limits on how much you can buy unless you go through more advanced KYC. Um, so that, that side of it, it's starting to become much more by the book and, and the ICOs the unscrupulous, uh, often fraudulent um, digital coin offerings, which we saw a few years ago, are now gone. Uh, they, the everything that is happening now in that space is generally by the book. Certainly, is that as a result of sorry the, the, the kind of fall away of the ICOs? Is that a market discipline that's you know has the market copped on that that yeah. these aren't worth the well worth the paper they're written on or. Well, I, I, th- I think that the market has copped on. You had, uh, you had the SEC in America basically saying, if you are issuing anything that is a digital token, which has the properties of a share or a security, and you do not follow security law, we will throw the full might of the SEC at you. And if one American citizen loses out, we don't care where in the world you are based, we will come after you. So that kind of bull- bullishness uh, fr- from them was needed, and, and rightly so. I think of, I, I don't remember the exact number 
I think it's definitely more than 50% of all ICOs in 2017, which, which collectively raised billions. 55% um, of them either have disappeared off the face of the earth, the company has, uh, or they have done nothing with the money. Uh, they've not released an actual token or a project. The project hasn't materialized or anything, which is huge. Um, I mean, there, there's, there's, there's still talk. I don't know if you, you, if you heard of OneCoin. Uh, it was that popular one, Dr. Ruja. Um, it was, there was a documentary about it recently. Uh, and they raised uh, billions. Um, just, just one cryptocurrency raised billions in 2017, 2018. They're still active now. Uh, the founder disappeared off the face of the earth. She hasn't been seen since. Uh, and people, people are still buying it, which is just unbelievable given, you know, the, there was massive BBC coverage about it. So yeah, whilst the world has copped on um, and the regulators have copped on a little bit, th there is still unscrupulous projects out there, unfortunately. Yeah, and I guess the challenge from a regulator's perspective is with, with any new innovation is it kind of has to hit a critical mass. It has to hit a point where there are enough people invested in it or enough people who could be affected if something went wrong to make it worth your while as a, as a regulator and as a legislature to deploy assets or deploy yeah. resources that you have, which are limited, to, yeah. to look at, like, I mean, you can imagine building a regulatory regime from scratch for cryptocurrencies and crypto assets um, is going to take a lot of legislature, legislature time and regulator time. So to do that, you've got to know, you're, you know, you're probably taking uh, resources out of other projects to do this. Um, and so you see these kind of trends come through. I remember a couple of years ago, there was a lot of chat about loan originating funds and IOSCO had done some work about whether it was worth pursuing the regulation of them. And I think they came to the conclusion that there just wasn't um, enough um, activity in the area to justify deploying a lot of regulatory resources into it. Uh, you saw the same with kind of peer-to-peer -peer lending as well, you know, and, and crowdfunding um, yeah crowdfunding regime. So it's it's tricky to get that balance right, to get there early enough that you're protecting investors, but then you don't know with any of these things whether they're actually going to get traction or whether they're just going to fall away. Well, I mean, to support that, whilst there's lots of chat about the sector, and I'm obviously, I'm, I'm pro-crypto, I'm pro-blockchain, but still, it is tiny compared to the rest of the investment market. I mean, you know, the, the, the whole value, the, the cryptocurrency aggregate value of all cryptos out there, which um, I think is probably 10,000 or so, or maybe between five to 10,000 now, um, is probably 300 billion, um, which of course is still huge, but compare that to the value of even all the companies on the FTSE 100. I mean, it, it, it pales into insignificance in comparison. So, you know, it's, it's still small and that ex exactly supports what you said. It, Whilst it has lots of chat, there's lots of chatter and there's lots of interest and intrigue perhaps in the sector, I think it has to become much more widespread. We have to see a, a Libra coin, you know, Facebook's, uh, I say it's Facebook's coin, it's not actually Facebook's coin, they're the ones championing it, but something like that where they are really trying to, uh, they are trying to become a main player in global currency. Um, it will take something like that for the regulations to have to really, or the regulators rather, to have to really ramp up uh, legislative provisions, I think. Uh, we hear from time to time, Andrew, uh, 
firms or crypto exchanges that are looking to move and move into more regulated jurisdictions and, and to try and get that badge, that authorization, that kind of validation over their model and their operations and procedures. Um, but it's hard to get them from, you know, from concept through to actual authorization. It's an expensive business uh, and it is a very different world to be operating in a regulated environment versus an unregulated environment. Do you think we'd see that actually develop into firms taking that step and, and going and getting authorization where it's possible? Or will the cost of it always kind of um, leave them to, to, to stay where they are? Yeah, I think that's something we're actually starting to see a lot more of. Um, and th- there is an appetite from those um, companies running exchanges in the likes of Malta and Estonia uh, and and Isle of Man, uh, which uh, were generally seen as a little bit more relaxed on the on the regulatory regime. Uh, particularly, um, this is now in regard of uh, Estonia. Estonia has now actually, I think, gone the other way, and they're quite heavy on the regulations and the licensing. Um, and there's still, rightly or wrongly, perhaps a, a perception that well, you're only in those jurisdictions because. Uh, you may not want to do things by the book. Why are they not in Dublin or London or Germany? Um, so the, that, I think, has spawned a number of inquiries. And, and I think I personally, or we as a firm, have seen more inquiries from other exchanges around Europe looking at Ireland as a regime in the last five months than we have done in years. Um, so th- there is a lot of that, I think, where you go from there is always a little tricky because the first question is, so in the country that I have my exchange in, this is the licensing procedure. What is the licensing procedure in Ireland? Well, technically it isn't one, but we think XYZ legislation may apply to you. And then a lot of them will be looking at um, EMI uh, licenses um, and other kind of you know banking licenses and and that's where i guess it gets a bit tricky that's where it becomes an expensive process um that's where it becomes uh, you know they they there we have a little bit of an unknown um you you have the benefit of potentially being based in a very respected jurisdiction um with a, with a friendly tax regime uh, like ireland has um but we can never give any guarantees that they'll get through the process. I think the, I think the Central Bank of Ireland are generally warm to the idea. I don't think they have a no no to crypto policy at all. Far from it. Um, but you know, we saw uh, Coinbase come over here, uh, and I think it took them. Uh, you know, they'd be one of the biggest crypto exchanges in the world. I think it took them over a year to go through the process. So it's challenging still. I think is yeah. the. Uh, yeah. I think that the, the, the regulator wouldn't generally, in any area, say, no, we're not open to that. Uh, mm. I think they'd be kind of neutral on that. They wouldn't say, well, we, we desperately want a certain type of firms to come and relocate to Ireland. Uh, but likewise, they wouldn't discourage it either. They would try to be transparent and say, well, if you want to come, this is the regulatory regime, and this is what you can expect from us when it comes to an authorization process. We'll have lots of questions for you. We want to know about A, B, and C. And then once you get authorized, this is how we're going to supervise you. Um, and so they've used the authorization process as a gatekeeper to make sure they're happy with the type of firm and, and particularly the people running that firm. 
Uh, and then on, so that when you get through and you're authorized and they're supervising you, that you know they're happy that they can effectively supervise the firm in the interests of protecting the consumers and, and safeguarding stability. So that's generally their approach. Um, but that, that can lead to an authorization process for firms where they haven't had a lot of those types of firms through the regulator where you find a lot of questions, where if somebody did the same authorization in a year's time, you might find that you can cut to the chase a little bit quicker. Just the, just the way it is, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's unavoidable. And what about tokenization then? Is that something that, um, yeah, again, it was something that there was a lot of chat about, but I, did it really take off? Did you see a lot of firms use tokenization for their, for their shares? Uh, again, I, I think it's, there's a, there's a few companies doing it now. There was a, there's a very good group of guys called Black Manta uh, in Germany. They're a fully um, regulated firm by uh, Barfin uh, in Germany. And they are doing tokenization of real-world assets. They recently, uh, this is going to make it sound like I'm their marketing manager now, but they, um, they recently did a tokenize some real estate in Berlin. I don't think that it's necessarily been built yet, but um, so as a concept, I think it is great. The, the ability to, to tokenize in a digital form real-world assets um, and have them ex- uh, easily exchangeable in, in, a, in a liquid form, particularly for illiquid industries like real estate, I think is great on paper. Um, how, the, the, how it works legally can be challenging. Um, we've looked at it and we think we can make it work from an Irish perspective uh, on the legal side of things uh, in terms of real estate and in terms of tokenization of equity. Um, I, I think it would be disingenuous to say it's been taken up on a large scale. Um, the, the technology is there. The companies are there. There's another company in London called Globacap that do uh, that are doing some interesting things around tokenization as well. Um, so, yeah, the, it's still very, very early days, uh, I think. Um, but the ability to have a little piece of of art or oil, you know, what one tenth of a barrel through in in a digital form or uh, a, piece of, a couple of grams of gold bullion in digital form. Um, I think it's interesting. It, it just opens another avenue, I think, for investors. What do you think, Shannon? Are you going to take your retirement pot and put it all on Bitcoin? Not yet, <laughs> but I might put some backing behind blockchain. <laughs> blockchain, um, uh, if we were to uh, look at how it's being used, within the financial services industry, uh, outside, for example, healthcare, it's, it's got some legs, it's going places. I think I struggled to really connect the dots between blockchain and actual business outcomes. Um, mm. But I think that's because I don't play a lot in the space day to day. Andrew, what are you seeing with blockchain to business outcomes? Are they mature yet? Or are we still trying to figure it out? Yeah, I, th- I think one of the important things to always distinguish, I know we, we, we've spent a lot of time talking about cryptocurrency, but you know, as you were alluding to, Shannon, that is just one use of blockchain. It's not the only use, far from it. Um, and I think given the, the way blockchain operates, and you know, I, I don't want it to become a geeky, uh, geeky how does blockchain work podcast, but I think any industry that where there is a central authority controlling a process 
where uh, you need absolute assurance that, that a record that you are being presented with is true and accurate, and that record can never be tampered with um, and will be there for uh, eternity if you want it there, I think could potentially be disrupted. I think su- supply chain is a big one. And I know that's not an industry per se, but just generally. Uh, the, the current state of the world and issues that we're seeing all the time with, with counterfeit PPE um, shows that global supply chains, amongst other things, are, are struggling at the moment. And that's not just in PPE, just generally. Counterfeiting is huge. Uh, fraudulent activity uh, in, in you know, quality goods um, is, is huge. And if you ignore how the technology works, just almost put that, to, put that to one side. If you could have a supply chain involving 10 entities, all using disparate systems, using multiple different um, methods of, of haulage, right from China to Dublin. And if, for argument's sake, you had a means of, by the time that equipment gets to hospital in Dublin, you have as near as you can be to 100% assurance that that is the exact same equipment to the exact same specification that was manufactured in China, then you know that, that can be nothing but positive. In terms of where I've seen it, real life case, uh, to give you a very recent example, we're working with a company called Finboot. Um, they are their petrochemical um, track and trace using on supply chains. They recently had investment from Repsol in Spain or the venture arm of, of the, the oil and gas giant Repsol in Spain. Um, and that they are doing for, with, with Repsol, they're doing track and, track and trace of, uh, of oil. Um, they're working with Iberia, they're working with Under Armour. Uh, I didn't realize this, but all, all of Under Armour's clothing comes from recycled plastic. Um, in in some way, shape, or form. So they're doing they're doing track and trace with them to make sure that their products are as uh, economically uh, not economically eco friendly uh, as they uh, purport to be. So I think the supply chain, for me, and, and that offering that blockchain gives you in supply chain could be as big, if not bigger, than. Uh, its use in in cryptocurrency. Well, when I've encountered people in the cryptocurrency area, but blockchain generally, uh, they tend not to be just you know involved. They tend to be fervent believers. So you tend to either be a believer or not. <laughs> yeah. um, they're, they're quite uh, invested in in particularly in blockchain as a solution uh, to change the world. Uh, is that your experience of uh, of people? who uh, in the industry are, are, are behind the scenes on, on the blockchain. And it nearly seems like um, such a groundbreaking change uh, and development that it's, it's nearly too big. It's, you know, the potential for it is massive, but um, I guess it's got to go in very small steps before and incrementally become part of our lives. It's this idea that although it could change the world in one fell swoop, not going to happen that way it's going to be kind of incremental change over time and we look back in 20 years time and next thing we find that um that much of what we do that you know where dlt or blockchain is suitable is actually deployed but it's not going to happen in one big bang 
Are you implying, Danny, I'm one of those crazy people that thinks it's going to change the world? No, nah, you're, you're, you're more <laughs> even-headed than that, but you're in the minority. Yes. Yeah, I, look, I think you have to remember where this came from. It, the Bitcoin and blockchain uh, was born out of um, pre COVID crisis, the worst financial crisis pretty much the world has ever seen. That that blockchain was developed 2008, 2009. It was almost like a, uh, in your face banks, in your face governments. Um, and there was a lot of people that almost saw it as a, a, an anarchist's dream to an extent. I can just transfer money all around the world and no one can track it and I don't need to go to a bank and it costs me a fraction of what a bank would charge me. This is amazing. Um, so I think that spawned the almost evangelical way in which it was viewed and the technology was viewed. The, the reality is it, it is, I totally agree with you, it's so broad and it's could potentially be impacted or, or be used in so many industries that I think you need to, I think bite-sized bits is, you know, that's how you have to view it. Um, still, you, you have you have IBM, you have Microsoft developing massive enterprise blockchains. You have Facebook, one of the world's largest companies, developing their own coin. Now, they're not going to be putting the kind of money into that unless they think this has got some legs. Uh, they, they are far smarter organizations than I will ever be which may surprise you. Uh, but the, you know, to, to buy into as a partner even for, for LibraCoin is a minimum of $10 million just to buy in. They have a waiting list of 1,400 uh, companies. So, you know, th that either they have a lot more faith in it than the haters or they simply have enough money to say this could be big Maybe it won't be, but it's probably worth a punt anyway, just because you know we should probably be there given given where this could go. The whole changing the world thing for me, I, I think that's that's a bit of a step too far. Uh, I I can't see that in 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 my lifetime. Uh, I think to, to depart from the way in which we transact and the way in which we spend money, if we're just, just talking about it in monetary sense, because that's the easiest real life example. Um, you know, to, to talk about buying property on, on, a, on a blockchain with an embedded smart contract, it will come, but, but to take out human interaction in lots of these processes entirely, and to take out systems which we have had for hundreds of years, I think whilst I'm very pro the technology, I think we, we, it perhaps needs to be tempered in terms of how far forward it is uh, at the moment. Um, so I think, I think that's important to, that's important to do. And there's still a whole army of people that really, really, really want to see it fail because they just think it's nonsense. So, you know, one of whom is Warren Buffett and, you know, he's a pretty smart guy. Mm. He's done well for himself. He knows a thing or two about investing. So, so how would you um, wrap up the state of crypto? And then separately, how would you wrap up the state of blockchain? Uh, I guess the state of crypto, I think the, uh, I would say, 
without putting blowing too much hot air into the into the industry or creating any unnecessary hype the numbers speak for themselves anyone can go and search you know how has bitcoin performed versus nasdaq in the last 2 years you can see you can see the answer there there has been an extreme time of volatility of course which has helped skew the numbers slightly particularly this year um, i think it has a future uh, would i bet my mortgage on it Absolutely not. Um, I'm not that strongly certain uh, that, that it will be around in 10 years' time. Um, in terms of blockchain, I, I think it has numerous real-world uses um, to improve efficiencies in lots and lots of sectors. It's still very, very new. Uh, if you were to look at uh, blockchain on the, I think it's the, the, the Gartner hype cycle of emerging technologies. Yep. I think it's probably still five plus years at least away from being uh, mainstream. We're probably just coming down now to the, I think it's called the trough of disillusionment on the Gartner hype cycle. Yeah. I think we're still within that uh, before we go to the plateau of productivity, I believe it's called. You, you may know better than me, Shannon. But um, yeah, so I, I still think it's, I still think it's early days, but I think the technology will be around and I think it will be embedded uh, in an underlying sense, we don't even know it's there, but it will be doing its thing, I think, for a long time to come. I might uh, compare it and contrast it to big data and just looking at the arc that that went through um, and the mm. implications that it had and all the different variables and moving parts that needed to be considered and worked out. Um, and considering my very novice perspective in the blockchain world, I would still venture our arc for blockchain really showing up and being what it could could be fully expressed is 2030 but yeah I, I, I don't think that's a bad shout yeah I'd, I'd probably agree with you I think uh, we're still a long way away uh, and you know on, on the big data side of things yes it, it became very valuable it became very marketable uh, there was lots of businesses tapping into it yeah and then GDPR came in and reigned in a little bit you know massive sweeping powerful bit of legislation that it was to kind of rein it in slightly i mean it's still you know big data still there and there's still yeah. always massive interest in it but i think we will we we will see legislation like that for for various blockchain sectors but i think it's important to remember that its uses are so are so vast yeah. in terms of sectors yeah um that it's it's much much harder to regulate it in the same way that gdpr did uh, use of big data but Fair I think 2030 is probably probably a good shout um Danny have you got anything else you want to ask no that's uh, that's it from my side Shannon uh, and I know time is kind of against us um I have one so last question sure Bertie told me that you are a really fantastic BB King piano player <laughs> true or false uh I, I would like oh, to think that's definitely true. true. I would like to think true, but anyone anyone that can actually play piano well would think otherwise. I really really enjoy playing piano. I, I'm uh, self taught. I play blues piano, only blues piano really. So it is BB um, King then. Yes, it was it was half true. The really really good part was the bit that was not true. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, five year olds that that uh, have no instrumental ability think I'm really good. 
Oh, well, that's what counts, really. You know, there you go. Uh, Yeah, good good at Christmas parties when when people are so inebriated, they think that I am BB King. (laughs) Thank you so much, Andrew. This was a really interesting conversation. Uh, Danny, I liked your questions. I learned a lot. Thank you very much. And uh, uh, I'm going to leave with this little bit of learning. Another piece of Netflix learning for me, uh, there's a very interesting documentary on Nina Simone uh, on uh, Netflix, and she was a concert pianist. There you oh, go. Yeah. Well, I, aspiring concert pianist. Uh, oh, I, I do like to put Nina Simone now. Oh, thanks oh, yeah. for that. Well, check it Thank out. Uh, so uh, let me wrap it up there. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you, Shannon, as always. I'll leave you out. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Andrew, for your contribution. Very interesting very to catch up on uh, all things crypto, uh, cryptocurrency, uh, digital assets, and um, blockchain and DLT, because that it's been around, I think we're up around a decade, uh, that these these ideas have been around. And whilst they had a lot of momentum behind them, it seemed a couple of years ago, they seem to have fizzled it a little bit. And so it's interesting to find out whether uh, that's true or not, or whether they've died, or whether they're or, or just simply uh, they're, they're progressing in the background, which it sounds like uh, is the case, uh, and are going to be with us way into the future. So thank you very much again, uh, Andrew. Uh, thank you, podcast listeners, for joining us. Um, great to have you as always. Feel free to share the pod, and we'll be back next week with the next episode of the Quest Podcast. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Aquas Podcast. For information about our training and advisory programs or our academy, visit aquas.ie. For more resources on RECs, funds, and governance, check out our YouTube channel, Daniel Lawler, R-U-R-Q.